welcome to another episode of Make Defense Great Again. My name's Chris Vasser, a.k.a. Coach Vass. Thank you so much for joining me. Today, we have a longtime NFL executive, Randy Mueller, on the podcast. We're answering, I was going to say, all of your draft questions, but we had so many great questions, not as much time to get through everything. We got to some great ones, though, and Randy was super open about the process and honest, and it was just a really refreshing listen to have somebody that's been on the inside for so long share his thoughts. I know it's a little different than the regular show. If you've listened to me on Twitter or maybe in previous pods, I kind of give the draft a hard time. I know it's important. I think some of the discourse around it, basically, I just think there's too much time in between. And I think it should be moved up and, and people start writing stuff because they run out of things to say. But with that said, I do enjoy it. And I will be glued to the television and Twitter on Thursday waiting to see who the Niners pick. Not because I'm a Niners fan, but I think you know why. I know I talked about it at the top of the show, but please go check out the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash coachfastfootball. If for nothing else to humor me, these videos take forever to make. So if you wouldn't mind going and watching, throwing a thumbs up, subscribe to the channel. Really fascinating piece on a pressure type that I didn't know existed until about a month ago or so. I really enjoyed making it. Got to see a lot of film. I got to see a lot of top players getting embarrassed by stud defensive players, which is always a good time. So check that out. Also, patreon.com slash coach Vass. This past weekend, we had Adam Gaylor on dropping knowledge bombs on us for the silver tier guys. Orange tier, we have the 2012 Utah State Dave Aranda cutups coming as well as the Coastal Carolina offensive cutups. So check that out. And if you want both, hit the gold up. And if there's anything you think we should add, holler at me on Twitter at Coach Vass, the show's account at MDGA Podcast, the Communist Offensive Pod account at Run Vass Option. Check out the website, CoachVass.com. The quarterback tiers mugs have been flying off the shelves and prep for spring ball and summer ball. So get yours today. Also, if you're interested in consulting, there's a consulting tab there. Or you can just reach out to me on Twitter. Spots are filling up. I'm almost sold out. So if you want to grab a spot, the consulting stuff is a lot of fun. We can talk about topics that I can't necessarily get into online. We can watch your defense. We can watch an opponent. Did a double wing game plan for a coach a couple weeks ago. That was a lot of fun. We can talk college defense, NFL defense, high school defense, whatever offense you're facing. If you want to spruce up your blitz package, whatever it is you want, it's your time and I'm here to help. So reach out. Speaking of destroying offenses, check out my coach tube courses in the show's description, or you can go to linktree.com slash coach Vass and the links to the courses will be there. The bundle for third down coverages, third down pressures and defending the RPOs is still on sale for $50. That's seven and a half hours of film for $50, originally 120. Also my defending the wing T course is available on sale. It's got a lot of really good reviews. I've had multiple coaches reach out, had a coach, as I mentioned before, played a team last year, lost on a running clock this year, turned around and shut them out. Got a lot of great feedback about that. If you've purchased the course, leave a review or just reach out to me and, and tell me what you think. You know, I'm putting this stuff together. I always can use feedback. And so please, 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 if you see something on, and this goes for all my stuff, YouTube, coach tube, whatever other tube, 
the website. I'm all ears. I'm just trying to get better. If you see anything, you have an idea, you think something should be different, reach out. We'll talk. I love hearing from you guys. And also, I'm going to put a call out going back to Twitter. Putting a show out like this, you know, I record it. I kind of blast it off into the ether. If you've never reached out to me on Twitter and you've been a longtime listener, hell, maybe this is the first time you're listening. Reach out and say hi. That's one of my favorite things is talking to listeners. I talk to guys all the time that they they don't reach out. And I've said this before, you know, I listen to Conan O'Brien's podcast every week, but I don't email Conan after the shows being like, great show Conan or hey, dumbass, you should ask this question, but feel free to reach out. My favorite thing to do is to talk to coaches and I'm always available. So hit me up. Lastly, make sure you subscribe to the show, rate and review it if you would not mind. It really helps the show and it helps coaches out. Plus, you know what? This is free. I, I don't ask for any money. Just just please, just, just, just leave me a little love. How about your boy, Seabass? All right, it's time. Let's get to the show. Let's get into it, man. My guest today is Randy Mueller, former NFL executive coach. See, I already did it. I, I told you in the pre-interview, I may call you coach, <laughs> and I already did it. Welcome right. welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to be able to talk ball with you and uh, finally connect. Yes. So let's talk about the finally connect part. So I was just mentioning to you that I believe it was Saturday, Friday or Saturday, I'd seen you on Twitter and... I won't say mutual friend because I was not super close to Tez, but I was telling my girlfriend actually earlier in the day about Cortez Kennedy. So the story goes that at Miami, what tends to happen is former players that went to the draft early, didn't graduate. They come back for these intercession classes that because at Miami, you don't go back until after Martin Luther King Day. So there's a two week period in the January window and then there's a spring break class. And so I enrolled in the class. I waited, of course, like everybody. Well, I don't say everybody, but a lot of people I knew. I waited and I took 21 credits my last semester. And so I fulfilled them during the winter sessions and the spring break intercession. And on one of those, Cortez Kennedy was in my class, along with Vince Wolfork, Kennard Lang, and a bunch of current Miami players. So I got to know Tez during my time. I It should be known that at that time... Uh, I almost said Coach Mueller uh, again, um, was a was the GM at the Dolphins. And I was a huge Dolphin fan, grew up a Dolphin fan, and I was also looking to get into the business. And so we were driving to a – we had this crazy class called the Sport Industry in South Florida. And we basically went to the Miami Marathon, the Florida Panthers, the Raceway. Well, one of those was we went and took a spring training game in. And it was a Red Sox game, which was hilarious because we were with Vince Wolfork and he was trying to be incognito. I'm like, Vince, you're one of the biggest people on the planet. I don't <laughs> think you can be incognito. And, yeah, yeah. and uh, so I sat next to um, Cortez Kennedy and Vince on the bus and you called Tez while we were on the <laughs> ride because you guys were going to have dinner that night. And so, uh, and I, of course, I knew at that time, I knew every GM, I knew every executive in the NFL, I knew every assistant co. like I was all read up on it. And and funny enough, I'd gotten a rejection letter from the Dolphins 
I'd written um, like a, hey, I'm graduating college. Do you have anything? And the only people to ever send me a message back, and I applied to like 60 places, was the Dolphins. So class organization. So Tez is in there. You guys are going to dinner that night. And I'm begging him. Tez, please <laughs> tell Randy about him. Please. Like, you know, and I didn't know how the business worked. Like, in my brain, you guys are going to go to some steak dinner in South Florida. And he's like, hey, there's this kid that I know in this class and he's really bright and whatever a superlative. And you were going to be like, Oh man, we just lost somebody. Tell him to apply. You know, I was just about to graduate in two months. Obviously everybody wanted to work at the dolphins. And so, but anyway, my friendship with Tez and then him being friends with you, um, you know, and you being just with the dolphins, I'd always followed you and followed your career. And so, um, the other night on Twitter, you mentioned something, and uh, I, I constantly do this. This is how I get a lot of guests, where I just randomly be like, tell them a story or something, and be like, hey, you want to talk some football? And so you were gracious enough to accept, and um, I'm really, really looking forward to this. I know that this is going to be a little different than stuff that we usually do, but everybody's thinking about the draft right now, and who else to have yeah. uh, an NFL legend but you, but... Uh, can you give us, and I was going to ask you about your, how you, you know, your background in football, but could you tell us about your relationship with Tez and stuff up until that point, maybe a little bit? Yeah. I mean, one of my dearest friends, uh, I considered him family till the end. Um, obviously a player for the Seahawks and, and I spent 20 years for the Seahawks. So I negotiated his contract a couple different times. His agent was a guy named Robert Fraley, who most know the story. He was also Payne Stewart's agent who died in the same plane crash as golfer Payne Stewart. Um, Robert was a mentor of mine. So we kind of connected early on, uh, Cortez and I, and became really good friends after his playing days. When I was in New Orleans, he would come visit us there. He would spend birthdays at our house, Thanksgiving at our house in, in uh, Washington here, and became uh, close with all my friends back home who are hunters and fishermen and Cortez used to fly in to go on hunting trips and fishing trips with us. So we did a lot away from football and really a, a shocking into a life that, that still bothers me to this day. And yeah, we were very close and uh, I think about him often. Uh, it just seems like he's always been part of my life. So it's hard to uh, even realize that he's not around anymore. So yes, that was uh, a long relationship that a lot of people know. Cortez had a lot of friends. He was close to a lot of people but he was a people person and that's really the way um, our relationship was. And uh, like I said, my daughter, my family, everybody uh, was close with Cortez. Man, he was great. I can still hear his laugh. Um, and yeah. he was and again, I knew him for a brief period. So, the, so another funny story about Tez. So Tez was taking this class and, and you please correct me if I'm wrong. Obviously you know a lot more about Tez than I do, but he lived in Northwest Arkansas and kind of a remote part of arkansas maybe it was southwest oh yeah it was a it was a very small town that's where he grew up yes so he would come and he would fly in and he would like take a private jet i don't know if it was a private jet or a cessna or whatever but he would fly and he told me about the stories about coming to see you and hanging out in new orleans and whatnot but so yep. after x amount of years of being out of the league he decided you know i want to i want to get I want to get my degree. And so um, he came back and I believe it was Vince. It was 2016. I want to say it was a year or two after Vince's rookie year. 
and uh, Wolfork had just won the Super Bowl and as, as a rookie. And so mm-hmm. Tez was just just giving him hell the whole time that we were there. Like, you so lucky. You got a ring in your first try. And you you dog, I, you know, I played for so long. And, and you come in your first year. And, and Kennard Lang was also in the class. And he was like, you know, he played on some teams that weren't so great and some good ones. And he was like, Vince, you have no idea how lucky you are. And it was cool because... You know, those three guys were Miami royalty. And then you had the current players in the class. And then like four other nerds. And I was one of them. I was not really a nerd. But I, <laughs> compared to Cortez Kennedy, I look like uh, a Bill Gates. Uh, yeah. But it was just a cool dynamic to see them. And, you know, the, the teacher was very cool about letting them share their experience. But anyway, so Tez was in a group project with me. Or no, I had a group project with Vince. But. I don't know. I guess Tez thought I was smart or I paid attention. So Tez was only taking that one class. He had an assistant or a secretary. And when it got to the end of the semester, he kept calling me. And here I am trying to crank out 21 credits. I'm about to graduate. Like I'm, I'm staring at the barrel of a gun. And there was like one day and I kind of forget, you know, when you get to know somebody who's kind of famous. And again, I'm not, I'm not pretending like Tez and I were best buddies. I kept in touch with him after and would kind of keep him abreast of my movement because I told him how, what I wanted to do career-wise. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm not pretending like we were best friends or anything, but there was one day he called me like three times within like an hour. And I was studying. That was, I, I, yeah. that was Tez? Okay, so I wasn't the only one. Yeah. So um, so I'm sitting there. I'm I'm sitting in the the main little, I don't know, atrium or courtyard in Miami. And he calls me like the third time in an hour and I'm like rolling my eye and he's asking me questions that I'd already, I don't know if it was a bad connection or whatever, but I'm like, Tez, like, was, you know, it's the same thing I just told you. And I was kind of annoyed because I'm trying to study for, I like a final the next day. Now in yeah. hindsight, I feel bad for even saying this out loud. Um, yeah. But so my buddy's sitting with me and he's Mr. UM. I mean, he, he started brainwashing his kids six months to prop their hands up to do the U. And he's like, look, they're doing the U on their own. Clearly, we see your hands propping them up. But, like, he's Mr. UM. And so I'm kind of annoyed. I'm stressed about this final. I'm, Come on, man. You've got, you know, you've got one class and a secretary. I've got, you know, I'm complaining like a little baby. <laughs> and I'm, like, rolling my eyes. And he's like, who is that? I'm like, oh, Cortez Kennedy won't stop calling me. And he's like, Who? Court to eat the football player. Yes, he just won't stop calling me. And I like not realizing in the moment how that sounded to somebody else that didn't know what was going on. He looked at me like, you should be excited. I was like, I know. I'm just stressed about this final we had the next day. But man, I I could hear his laugh. I still hear it. And he actually was in Orlando when he passed. And I kicked myself for not, you know, when you're I, I kicked myself for not reaching out to him more. And it was one of those deals. It'd been a couple years and I thought about it a couple times. And I think at one point I tried to text him, but I think he had a different number and, um, gone way too young, way too young, 48 years old. But, um, you know, he was an inspiration, to a lot of people and seemed like the greatest guy, like anybody that's ever known him. The words that came out about Tez, you could tell it was super genuine. And so I'm glad to hear, um, how much of an impact he had. So speaking of having an impact, you yourself being, you've won general manager of the year. I mean, and Tez told me like you started as a ball boy for the Seahawks. I don't know if I remember that story right. I'm proud that I remembered it if it's true, but give us your background on 
how you got to be one of the highest levels of office and the greatest professional sports organization or entity in the world? Well, I guess if I go back to where the start was, and Cortez was right, I I grew up in a little logging town in northern Idaho, 2,000 people, not a stoplight in town, um, never will be, born and raised in this little town. And uh, one summer, I got a job as a ball boy for the Seahawks, who were training about an hour from where I grew up. I don't have a background in football. My family, my dad wasn't a coach. I didn't know anybody. But for some reason, they hired me. I was a quarterback at a high, high school locally and ended up being a quarterback in college and winning the national championship. But I went and, and, and worked for them in the summertime and spent five summers after that working kind of my way up as a ball boy, as a camp gopher, as an administrative assistant, all the way up. And when I got out of college, Chuck Knox had just come from Buffalo. They were making a bunch of changes in the front office. And they always say life's about opportunity and timing, right? So they hired me full-time right out of college. So I came to the Seahawks out of Little Linfield College in in Oregon, where we had just won an NAIA national title. So the Seahawks had followed me through college and knew of me, obviously, because I came back and worked every summer. But I started uh, back in that that year. was 1983. And uh, really, 15, 18 years later, I just kept moving up the pole. And like you say, uh, Pretty soon, you know where all the bones are buried, right? And someone has to do all the crap jobs. And I didn't make any bones. I would do anything anybody wanted. Pretty soon, next thing I knew, I picked my head up from behind a desk, and I was the boss. So uh, from the bottom to to the top and really spent 20 years with the Seahawks and then went on to the Saints, uh, as you mentioned, as the general manager there and built a playoff team there and won the Saints' first playoff game and then came to Miami with Nick Saban and spent three years there. And then after that, spent 10 years with the Chargers as their national scout. So um, I left there about a year and a half ago. The travel wore me down after all these years, but I'm still in my 50s, so able to work and do a lot of media things, and, and that keeps me going. But that's really, in a nutshell, uh, where I started and uh, still go back and spend a lot of time in Idaho. But Seattle's home for the most part, and I go back and forth between Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and, and Seattle. That's great. Love the story. And and somebody who had no connections or anything with me as well. I mean, I basically went to Miami and (laughs) it's embarrassing telling the story now. At the time, I I think it was was cool. But now I'm like cringe because if somebody did that to me, I'd have them arrested. But I uh, during that intercession class, I believe we went and did the uh, we went to Miami's football facility. And I wanted to get in the business. I had no experience. I didn't. I didn't play in college, and but I loved the game and I loved working with young people. I used to be a camp counselor, and um, I really connected with high school age guys. Just had a couple of really just really amazing experiences. And um, I was like, you know what? I want to work with young people, and I love football. And I didn't really tell anybody about it because I thought it was going to be insane that I wanted to be a college or pro football coach with no real experience and my buddy who played in Notre Dame under Bob Davey and Urban Meyer and that whole crew was like, you'd be perfect. What are you talking about? So we go to the office. I tell him, I said, Hey, listen, um, I'd love to get in the business. I'd love to sit down with you. So Jeff Merck, God bless him. Took a meeting with me. I was a student. I was just a nobody. I was just a regular student about to graduate. And I sat down with him and I told him my goals and he spent about a half hour, 45 minutes with me. And he said, listen, I'm going to check around here and see if there's anything I can get you for your last semester. 
I'll call you in a week. Well, Mr. Merck made a mistake and he didn't call me in a week. And I called him every day for six weeks. I called him, emailed him, or a couple of days, I, a couple of times I was just around and I was like, hey, just, I was around the office because I had a uh, class over there and I was just like, hey, just popping in. And, and at the end, it became a game. Like I used to tell my roommate, well, I'm going to call Merck today for him to tell me, you know, like it was basically just to get him to tell me no. Um, cause I would have taken no for an answer, but I just wanted to hear the no. And finally one day he was like, I found something for you. Please God, stop calling me. And sure enough, that's how I got on. And then I parlayed that into a job at San Jose state. And I went on and realized that I would have much rather coached high school football and took me on my journey. But, um, yeah, so I always have a soft spot for guys who just kind of, it just happened out of thin air. You know, you didn't have a father or an uncle in the league. Not that those guys, and, and there's so many great coaches that have connections. Like, I don't want it to sound like that or I'm like bitter guy, but yeah. whenever you hear those stories about people that they just kind of came from, I don't want to say nothing because that sounds bad, but like came from no connections. So I'm excited to introduce Coach Vast Defense, a comprehensive out-of-the-box defensive system with everything you need to coordinate a top-tier defense coming in early 2025. The system is a one-stop shop and comes with a complete, robust defensive scheme with tools to get into any structure, including even, odd, mint-tight, bare, stack, three-high, and more. It comes with an NFL-level playbook with run fits and route matches, narrated install videos with a schedule for implementation, and a library of answers for every offense you will see, including the spread 11 personnel offense du jour, the air raid, the Bryles offense, option schemes including the flex bone, the wing tee, three back, and much more. It also comes with a drill and game film library, live in-season game planning sessions, templates to help you organize practice, opponent breakdown, and tools to make you a better play caller. Whether you're new to coordinating or a grizzled vet looking for new ideas, this system will have something for everyone. If you want to see all the details of the system, visit coachfastdefense.com and make sure to sign up for the mailing list to get updates and invitations to webinars, to have your say in the system's creation, so all of your coaching needs are met. Again, go to coachfastdefense.com, check out the details, and sign up for the mailing list. Let's get into the weeds. So this is normally a coaching podcast, and I, I so I need to start with coaching involvement. The number one question, kind of put this on Twitter, so half these questions are, are followers of mine, followers of the, the podcast, and then half of them are for me. How involved are coordinators and position coaches in the draft process? Are they watching prospects? Are they watching all the prospects? Are they weighing in? How much of their input is actually taken in? Like, how does that work? Well, they're very involved. Let me just start with that. And I'll tell you, the, the involvement starts even before the drafting process because we have set some criteria. And for lack of a better term, I'll just say, we have job descriptions for everything we're going to ask these players to do that at every position. So we've gone through the criteria for these job descriptions and put them in a priority order. So we know exactly what we're looking for. And that really comes from discussion with the coaches. So they're involved really with that, you know, uh, figuring out what we want and then sure they're involved. They're involved at the latter stages. Um, they're coaching the team. So they're not out evaluating players like, the personnel guys are for six months. And then after our season is over, they will get a list of players that, that I want them to look at. Um, I want to find out really how they feel about them fitting with what we're doing. They've been graded. They've been put on a board already, but we'll tweak some of that depending on the coach's evaluation. And that usually happens toward the end of the process. So 
they're very involved. They're involved with the criteria for, for what we're looking for. They're involved with the evaluating, um, probably not as involved in the actual selections, but they get a chance to have input. I build, and this is just my opinion, I build through consensus. So I always think that the truth is somewhere in the middle. If you have a scout that thinks something, a coach that thinks something else, good chance that the truth falls in the middle somewhere. So that's the GM's job to kind of put it all together and to come up with a consensus so that we have a grade and a place on a player that reflects our team. And really our team and that criteria is all that matters. I don't really care how other teams view these players. I don't care how they evaluate them because we know what's best for us. And so, yeah, the coaches, to answer your question, are very involved. Yeah, I laugh at some of the – and I know that there's a long period of time between the end of the season and the draft, and there's a lot of guys that run out of things to talk about. And I know there's a lot of subterfuge, but the the fact that – and maybe I'm, maybe I'm dead wrong on this. That's why I'm having you on to tell me, to, to correct me, but – I laugh at some of the things like, oh, that's just subterfuge in the media. Like they're they're high on a guy because they want somebody else. And yeah, there might be some of that in terms of who people are going to pick. But like, I doubt, you know, NFL executive of the year, Randy Mueller is sitting there going, oh, man, I didn't like this guy. But the Boston Globe says this guy likes him. And so shit, we better take him. <laughs> you know, like that just I just roll my eyes and kind of laugh at some of that. I chuckle with not a disrespect, but everybody should have and has an opinion. I just don't know the evaluators, so I can't consider anything they say. I'm only going to consider the people who I know as evaluators around me. And that doesn't mean they're all good evaluators. But I always say we have to evaluate the evaluator. So I know good. I know bad. I know certain coaches are good at this. Certain coaches aren't good at it. I know scouts that I would have really as information gatherers at times, others are really good evaluators. So I think when you put all this together, it starts with evaluating the evaluators and the agendas from which they come from. That's for sure. But again, I I have used some of the mock drafts that these media guys come up with and they're very valuable, trust me, but I don't really care as much about their individual evaluations because they don't know what we're looking for. So you got to take that part with a grain of salt. So you would check out the mock drafts just to see where people, because there, I mean, l- listen, and I say this, I'm going to be very, I'm going to try to be Switzerland here. Over the years, I never, I never thought when I started this podcast uh, two years ago that I would be rubbing elbows with some of the NFL's best journalists, but some of my closest friends have become journalists and some are connected um, very well. And some are just really great writers and they evaluate what's on film. But I know some guys that are in the know that are freelance, but also have a lot of connections and actually maybe do have, or they are used as propaganda machines to be like, Oh, we're not taking this guy. We're taking this guy kind of a thing, but they definitely have access. And so I was always curious if NFL GMs or executives or scouts would look at these mocks not from everybody, but certain people that may be connected to see if maybe a team's thinking a certain thing. Is, is that the case? Well, you know what I use them for is in the preparation of the few days leading up to the draft. I would invite everybody to come with all their mock drafts. Bring them all in the draft room. We're going to go through them all because it's like a dress rehearsal for us. Every idea, every crazy pick, everything that's out there, I want to have talked about it, discussed it, vetted it 
because it's probably something we hadn't thought we'd have to be ready for. So it's no different than you putting a game plan out for your players. Right. We want to have gone through, we want to go through everything. So yes, we use all of these mock drafts for preparation so that nothing is going to surprise us. I think my best example of this is when I was in New Orleans, we did mock drafts for two days prior to a draft in which we drafted Deuce McAllister. One of these mock drafts had had Deuce McAllister falling to us. We had Ricky Williams at the time. The prior staff had given away the farm to trade for him. But <laughs> after being there, after being there a year, I was less than sold on that being an option for me to hitch my family and my career to. So um, I thought in the back of my mind that if Deuce was there, that it would be worth a discussion. So one of these mock drafts led us to that card being there as our highest rated guy on our board. And I remember when we got to it during the mock draft, Jim Haslam, our head coach said, now what? I said, well, now we pick him. (laughs) And what it did was it put everybody kind of on alert that this was a possibility and we talked it all through. Plus it then gave me a chance to go meet with our owner, Tom Benson at the time, go through all that process with him as well. So these mock drafts were very valuable. Had we not had that mock draft that maybe one out of 30 of these led us that, that Deuce McAllister was available. Had we not had these, I don't think we would have ever pick Deuce, who went on to be the franchise all-time leading rusher and a, a great icon in, in Saints franchise history. So I do think there's value in mock drafts, and we used them probably just in a little different form than maybe you would have considered. That's fantastic. And, and what's funny is you end up trading Ricky to the Dolphins, and then you end up yeah. taking them over. <laughs> now let me ask you, were you – were you happy with your with your decision for the what you got for him when then you were on the other side with the Dolphins? Like, did you think it was a good deal? <laughs> yeah, no, probably not. <laughs> and, and probably Ricky, when I, I remember seeing him when I got there, I was the last guy he wanted to see. Right? <laughs> no, no. He knew I was the. Well, I'm just saying he knew I was the guy that traded him out of New Orleans. But hey, it worked out good for both teams. Ricky had some productive years, and I actually like Ricky. I got along good with him. And he, he put together even a couple years uh, when Nick and I were there, one year in particular that was good, and we actually had him come back and he got hurt again. So I had nothing against him. I just felt like a safer investment for us when we were in New Orleans with the draft use McAllister, and it worked out good for us. That's a fantastic story. I, You know what's funny is, and of course, the thing about the NFL is, at least with the media, a lot of the executives, they're just they're very – nice maybe even use the word demure like, oh everybody's so wonderful not a lot of execs are out there being controversial but you know you do a deal and i'm not saying this happened but like so let's say you do this deal with ricky and you're like damn i fleeced their ass ha 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 and everybody's la- sitting around <laughs> laughing and then what is it two years later well i guess that pick would have been gone by then but still i mean you felt the reverberations of that because you end up taking over the team you trade with it's like damn <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have done Um, that. That's funny. I never thought about that. We ended up getting two first round picks from the Dolphins for him in New Orleans. And I wasn't even around to, to see the fruits of that. So (laughs) I was there the first year and uh, we did have two first round picks that ended up being really good players for us. But the second year I was not there. So that's just the life in the NFL, right? You never burn any bridges. Nobody ever celebrated the trade as saying we fleeced anybody because we all know we've, we've, 
had the humble pie served our way. So right. it kind of uh, comes with the territory that what goes around comes around. But and it worked out good for us. And I'll say this, Ricky had some awesome productive years in Miami when Wanstead was the coach, and that was before I got there. So, so they got some of their money's worth, that's for sure. That's awesome. So how are you able to ascertain a player's mental makeup with only 15 minutes at the combine? How are you able to not only get their personality, but evaluate their ability to learn information and be able to perform that? Yeah, well, in normal cases, normal years, we get a lot more than that. We get that as a starting point at the combine, which didn't even happen this year because of COVID. So it's less this year and harder on teams because everything's done virtually. Everything's done on Zoom calls for the most part. But in a normal year, we would get to spend a lot more time with these guys. We would bring them into our office and get them for a day and a half. We could put them on the board. We could watch film with them. We could do all this kind of stuff. This year, not true because they only get these guys, and I think there's a time limit now of like 30 minutes that they get these guys on Zoom calls. So um, you can learn some of how a person learns. You can test his recall. You can get some information in these virtual interviews, but not near as much as we get in the past. That, therefore, I think this year's draft class is a little more of a crapshoot than ever because the medical information is a little shoddy. We normally would have these guys at Indianapolis for, for several days, and all of our doctors would get a chance to peek at them. And the interviews themselves are shoddy because nothing's face-to-face anymore. So um, we're going to make for an interesting draft this year. They had some of that last year, but at least uh, they did have a combine, so they were able to get a fair amount of information face-to-face. This year, not so much. If, if I was given a choice, and had 10 picks in this draft or 10 picks next year, 2022, I would rather have next year's picks for sure, just in, in with the idea that you're going to get to spend more quality time with a prospect sizing them up than you would this year. That's interesting. Never thought about that. I wonder if you'll see more trades from guys to be like, you know what, I don't know much about this, unless it's a guy like a Kyle Pitts or somebody who's like, yeah, we're going to take him. <laughs> you know, somebody that's yeah. almost... Well, I you, you shouldn't say can't miss, but you know. Yeah, no, it's a good point. I think it, we saw it a little bit in a trade just the other day when the Chiefs traded for Orlando Brown Jr., a tackle from the Ravens. They gave up their pick this year, which was 31, and a couple picks next year. You know, uh, actually, they gave up two picks next year. So I think the, the, the year in which these picks fall, the information that you gather is very interesting. But to give up those picks, they got an extra second-round pick back this year. So it just depends on – it's why they say that's why Baskin-Robbins has 31 flavors, right? You get to pick your favorite. And uh, that's kind of the way these drafts are now. I think this year is a different different landscape for sure. Right. Yeah, it's got to be insane. I mean, you, you know, we're creatures of habit in the sport. And now all of a sudden, everything you know – not everything, but a lot of things you know in the fundamental process – you know, is, is gone. I mean, if you would have asked us, if I would ask you when you were at the Dolphins, hey, uh, we're going to cancel the combine, la- you know, this year, you would go, oh, my God, no, you can't do that. Ah, we, You know, how would we live? And it's like now it's not even a, a, a choice. Like it happened. Luckily, last year's got, I think it was like the week before COVID started, right? Yeah. No, that's right. The combine got in and, and then COVID came after that. So that's why I'm saying they have that to fall back on. Uh, and I, I've seen this already in some teams as well, having done without the combine now and without sending a full staff to maybe even the senior bowl or the pro days, 
seems like the Rams have refocused their efforts on other things. In fact, it's sent them back to watch more film than ever before. They haven't been chasing players. They haven't been with their scouts out of all the pro days. This forced them to kind of do things differently. It'll be interesting to see if that new way of doing business carries over once we get through the COVID times. Absolutely. I saw you say on Twitter that edge rushers are one of the hardest positions to predict. And and you said it's, you know, the, you get these athletic freaks. It's almost a little reminds me of receivers, too. You get these athletic yeah. freaks with no production. And then you get these guys with a lot of production that maybe don't have the best athleticism. Not necessarily athleticism, but they don't have the numbers that pop out at you. Is right. that a fair assessment of why it's so hard to predict? And then how do you mitigate those issues? I think for the most part, and we've done studies on this, guys who make sacks in college make sacks in the pros. That's kind of not an opinion. I think numbers back that up. The other thing about edge rushers is, that, and I'll use my time in Miami with Nick Saban as an example, we didn't even have a position for an edge rusher. I remember talking to him the, the year Tom Ali came out, who's a edge rusher, pass rusher, came out of Penn State and was drafted, I think, in the first round by Kansas City. And, and I talked to him colors blue in the face, try, face trying to sell him on the idea that Tom Ali would be a good player for us. And in the end, it kept coming back to, Randy, we don't have this position. When we run 11 guys out there, we don't run out edge rushers. <laughs> so the edge rusher to me, and, and I learned this from Nick, is kind of a tweener. He's not really a linebacker because he doesn't go back in any coverage. He's not an end because he can't put his hand on the ground and hold up against the run. So the two biggest you know, two of the three things we're going to ask him to do, he doesn't do well. But, of course, there's value in rushing the passer. But other teams know that. They find a way to mitigate one pass rusher, and therefore these, I think, edge rushers are hit and miss. It's a, it's a grab bag because it's all about fit. Anybody in that front seven, as coaches, we all know that the front seven is, in my opinion, all about fit. Whether you play a 3-4 or 4-3, you better have some pretty disciplined and detailed criteria for what you're looking for. And I think that was the good thing I learned spending some time with Nick is, and, and he was really good about it. He didn't care if a good player went to someplace else at a position that we didn't have. So he was fine with that. A lot of coaches aren't. A lot of coaches want to make room for these edge rushers and, and other things, even though we don't have a position like that, and they end up overdrafting them or, or, or taking a guy that just doesn't fit. So, I always come back to that job description. Uh, I'm boring, but I want to find the guys that fit for us, and I don't care if they fit for anybody else. It makes perfect sense. Um, leave it to Nick to stick to his guns. What's funny is the way that sub packages are, I feel that, and I, I could be wrong, I'm, I'm no defensive expert relative to the NFL, but it seems like with all the sub packages, a lot of that 3-4 versus 4-3 has been blurred in terms of, you know, you know, here's Bella, a guy like Belichick who was really one of the only handful of people left when he, when he stopped doing it to run a true two-gapping 3-4. I'm talking the we're lining up head up, we're going to try to get front side of a blocker instead of lagging behind one the backers overplay where they were trying to get their guys front side. You know, but with with all the sub stuff and 11 personnel stuff, do you think the line has been blurred since maybe you were with Coach Saban in terms of, 
you know, because how, how many three, four teams, when they get in a nickel, they, they take out their nose, they take out one of their three interior guys, and they take their outside backers and walk them up. You know, and then if you're a four three team, you just replace the Sam. Like, what's the what? What do you feel there? I mean, is do you think the lines have been blurred a little more than, and and you can actually see that because instead of people being DNs and outside backers, they're referred to as edges and you know interior D linemen. Like, how how, how do you feel about that? I hear what you're saying, but here's the other side of that: teams are running the ball still. Teams are still running the ball, even though you have sub personnel in the game. So those edge rushers eventually have to play the run as well. I can't, you can't guarantee me that they're going to pass the ball so we can get our edge rushers out there all the time. That's why I say teams have figured out a way to mitigate edge rushers, if no other reason than just to run the ball. Plus they run the screens and draws to death, and, and uh, eventually you've got to play the other aspects of the defense. So I think edge rushers are valuable, don't get me wrong, but I also think you've got to be able to drop and you've got to be able to play the run, and that's the – that's the line that's never been blurred for me. I hear what you're saying. You're playing sub now 70% of the time, but of that 70%, when you're in sub, another 10 or 15 of that is really defending the run. So that takes that percentage down, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. I get, I've been watching, so so I've been doing, I just released the one today, shameless plug, uh, I just released a video on a play called Whip Fire Zone, which is a a bonus fire zone that the the Baltimore Ravens tree and then people off that tree ran. So basically, you're bringing your will, you're dropping the field side, outside backer, D end, but it's fire zone coverage, but you have an extra dropper and it's basically like custom drop, like wherever you want them. Instead of mm-hmm. if you're doing a zone replace pressure with the four underneath droppers have kind of equal responsibility, like you're the strong hook player, you're the weak hook player. Basically, they say it's fire zone underneath, and then you just kind of put them wherever you, that extra guy wherever you want them. I, I liken it to Madden, where you just like user bullying the guy <laughs> wherever you literally like in trips. The Fangio guys, they say, hey, you know, chuck three, drop outside of him, take him to the flat. There's no, hey, drop to the curl. There's none of that. Anyway, my point is, I've been watching a lot of his films, you know, Staley's film where. You know, they're playing nine techniques. You know, they're playing the three and a one inside, and then they're playing wide edge guys. So, but when I think about it, you know, what you're saying obviously makes so much sense. You know, I remember with the Dolphins, I could still name you everything about them when you were there, but like Kevin Carter was a defensive end. He was listed as a defensive end on on some charts and some things. Maybe it was a different thing inside that building, but to the media and the poor schlubs like me who were (laughs) just fans. We saw DN Kevin yep. Carter, and I, you know, when you think of Kevin Carter today, I would not think DN, or not like the guys that you're seeing now who play DN. Well, he's not an edge rusher for sure, but he's sure. five technique every day, and that's what he did for us. And again, that's a 285 pound man, so that's a different, a different feel. There's a couple guys in this year's draft that I think could be Kevin Carter's. It's funny you bring him up. One of them is a Miami kid, the Jalen Phillips kid that came from UCLA that went to the Hurricanes and played one year. He's going to be a 275-pound man when he grows up, too. So he is a clear defensive end. Those are the guys I'm looking for. I'm going to draft one of those guys over a spot edge rusher most times because I want the bigger body because I want it. I know at some point we're going to have to defend the run, and we can't always do it with sub-personnel. That's really interesting because all you hear about, and I think it's one of those flashy, sexy things. Yep. It's just like nose tackle versus a three technique. I mean, I still think really good nose tackles can, especially if you're playing odd fronts, 
you can't run away. I mean, you can run outside, but you can't like you can't pick a side. In, if you're going to run inside, they're there. I still think a, a dominant nose tackle is super important and effective, and you and you can see that coming around by guys like Fangio and, and, and Staley who are running bare fronts out of too high now. And, and, you know, but everybody always wants to talk about the sexy three technique because they get the sacks and the highlights and yep. et cetera, et cetera. hundred yep. percent. I agree. Yep. I want that 350 pound nose if that's what it takes, because I want him to hold the point and that affects everything we do on defense. If he can't hold the point, we're, we're, we're fighting uphill after that. But right. if we get a guy that can hold the point that frees up everything we do. And I agree with you. And of course, that, that's been the case in most three, four defenses, even before Nick's time back in the Chuck Knox days where I grew up, we played a three, four defense. Mm. Once we got Cortez, we went to a four man front and it was a different scheme altogether, but I'm with you. I'm always looking for that 350 pound nose guy that can't get pushed off the block. And coach always would say, well, he's going to eat himself out of the league. I don't care if he weighs 400, they can't knock him back. So he serves a purpose for us if that makes any sense. Right. Well, and some of the guys we mentioned today, like you said, Tez and Vince Wolfork, I mean, you want to talk about having that conversation with Vince was funny because, you know, his whole life, he was a four, three, three technique. And in Miami, they're like, get up the field and kill. And we're like, all right. And then he went to new England and he struggled his first year. In fact, they backed him off the ball and he actually drew on that, that, uh, that infamous bus ride. We talked about, he sat next to me and, and I and he drew up. I still have the piece of paper somewhere. He drew up how they were playing them, and he said I struggled. He, you know, was, when I was a three technique, I knew these two guys were going to possibly come get me. He goes, but now I got this guy, I got that guy, and they had to back him up. But Belichick had the foresight to know that he thought he could do it, and he ended up. I mean, I don't know if he'll go into Canton. I don't think he'll go into Canton, but he was a damn good pro. Now, Tez, you played him at yep. three. We played him at three, but he is one of those guys that could play anywhere. It didn't yeah. really matter. His size and pad level allowed him to get under people's pads. They couldn't knock him back. I mean, he would have been fine as a nose as well. But we played him at three just because we get him matched up on guards and he could get an edge or get under their pads and was a nightmare to block. Can we talk about the 1989 Miami Hurricane team having Russell Malin and Cortez Kennedy as their defensive tackles? Can we just briefly mention yeah, that? About that? <laughs> Not to mention about five or six other first-round picks that were all good players as well. So a great a great uh, exercise is to go back and watch that Hurricane team play Oklahoma in one of those years when Boz was a senior. That was fun to watch because you talk about NFL players on both sides of the field playing everywhere. Yeah. I never get tired of watching that stuff. I think it was 85, 86. That was the infamous one where they called him the night before the game. and. He's like, we're coming for yeah. you, Boz. And they're screaming on the phone. He's like, okay, guys. That's right. I, I pulled up the roster. Yeah. Listen to some of the names on here that have made it in football. Um, Rob Chudzinski, <laughs> Mario Cristobal. Yep. Um, you've got, obviously, Tez was on that team. Russell Maryland, as I mentioned. Greg Mark is a guy who would have been fantastic had he not gotten hurt. But, yep. Yep. you know, Jesse Armstead, Robert Bailey, Michael Barrow. Darren Smith, those three guys, Armstead, yep. Barrow, and Smith. I imagine a, having a linebacking crew like that. Anyway, I, I could talk about Miami all day. I'll move on. Yep. But And some of the coaches, you know, Ogeron's the D-line coach. Tuberville's yeah. the linebacker yep. coach. Sonny Lubick, Bob Perdowski, Dennis Erickson. Anyway, I don't want to nerd out on bore everybody with my Miami <laughs> fanboy stuff. But uh, now, speaking of this year's draft, I'm not going to talk about this specific year's draft 
very much because I know that you've probably talked about it ad nauseum. I'm sure you're probably tired of talking about it. At this point, it's just like, just happen, make it happen. But let me ask you this. If you had, and this may be a crazy question that you can't answer, and you might be like, dude, there's, there's no way I could answer that question. But if you had to pick one player in this draft, and maybe maybe the answer is nobody, who will be the first player to wear a gold jacket going into Canton, like surefire, like this guy's going to be special. And maybe not Canton, but in 10 years, that guy's still playing, and you're, st- you're just still in awe of. Who do you think it would be? Well, for me, it'd be Kyle Pitts because I think he's a unicorn, right? I don't think he's a tight end. I don't think he's a receiver. I think the best comparable I can put on with him is Megatron, the the Detroit receiver. Um, This guy's big. He's fast. He's going to be a matchup nightmare. And here's the thing. When they do cover him, they can't do anything about it because he outreaches them and makes the catch in traffic. So I think Kyle Pitts, the tight end from Florida, if I was going to pick somebody that was going to go to some Pro Bowls, I think it'll be him, um, and he won't get picked first. He may not get picked till fifth or sixth. I don't know. Maybe your Dolphins will pick him. But if I was picking one player to be special, at the end of the day, it would probably be him. This past season, coaches across the country used CoachPad to be more efficient with their scout cards for prep on the weekends and on the practice field with their scout team. Whether you're using a computer program to create your scout cards or drawing them by hand, the CoachPad is for you. Some of the features coaches enjoyed the most this past season was never printing paper or stuffing a binder, the scout team being able to see their cards clearly, even in the bright sun, and using the CoachPad on game day to sync diagrams from the press box to the sideline. This offseason, get yours at thecoachpad.com and get your program ready for next season. Again, that is the coachpad.com now i gotta ask i i don't think i would be allowed off this pod if i didn't ask this question i'm rolling my eyes because it's been asked a million times but you know you got to do duty on these <laughs> things randy you're a podcaster you know you got to give the people what they want if you had to yeah. rank these five quarterbacks in order that are going to be in the draft or any five quarterbacks in this draft where would they be yeah I have a couple quarterbacks at the top of what I would say is my board, which is a napkin in front of me. It starts with Trevor Lawrence. I think, I think the upside that he brings, the size, the athleticism, once he gets in an NFL offense, I think he could go off the charts, and I think he could be a top-10 NFL quarterback fairly early. I do like Zach Wilson second, the BYU kid. I see why the Jets will end up picking him. He just does more uh, second- and third-level things instinctively that come with the quarterback position. And that's why I set him aside second. After that, it's Justin Fields for me. It's uh, Trey Lance fourth and Mac Jones is fifth for me. I just think the other guys, and, and we say five quarterbacks going in this year's draft, it doesn't mean they're the five, you know, greatest things in the world. I, I think it depends on who you ask. For me, I would only take two of them. The other three, as in starting with, with uh, Justin Fields, Trey Lance, and Mac Jones, I think they're they are prospects. I don't know if they're NFL quarterbacks at this point. Maybe Mac Jones, but his upside is is not what Trey Lance is, and it's not what Justin Fields is. I understand why the 49ers may end up picking him. He might be more suited to do what they do right now. I just don't know if he's going to have a clean pocket to make all the throws like he did at Alabama. So those quarterbacks are are debatable in any fashion and all NFL teams are debating them all or have been. I think they kind of know what they're doing now, but that's how I would rank the five. Now I'm a notorious draft, not hater, but you know, as a fan, 
I remember I was always into it. I was doing mocks with my best friend and all into it. And then there was one year, and I can't remember, it was towards the end of the 2000s, where there was a historically low number of people that were drafted in the first round that actually did anything. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, I got worked up for all these months about this, and then none of these guys played or are doing anything. Like, you know, maybe I should, you yeah. know, allocate my time elsewhere, but... You know, and I give I give a hard time to people who just live and die with this. But I reached my hand in the cookie jar the other day and made a draft tweet. And I found this wonderful thing on Twitter. You seem like a nice guy with not a lot of hot takes. So you probably don't experience this. But I said something along the lines that if Kyle Shanahan drafts Mac Jones, they should take the genius label away from him over Justin Fields. And I was first of all, I don't care. Second of all, I was half kidding. And I made a disparaging yeah. remark about his Chris Sims tattoo. And that's okay. Whatever. We'll move on. But, you know, I I, I think, and, and again, this is just one person's opinion. I don't really care. I think I think he's a little overrated. And I know that a lot of people think I'm insane for saying that. I just, I don't know. I watch their offense and I'm like, I don't get it. But, but that, again, I know I'm in the very small minority. Very, very small. And I get why people just look at me like I'm insane. But. So I muted people that I don't follow or don't follow me or I don't know how it works. But like, I, it's, <laughs> it's a tweet that I had like probably the most interaction with and a couple of really big accounts retweeted and people were hurling insults at me. Like I just <laughs> stolen something from their house. It was insane. And there's just so much emotion and, and so many opinions. And my favorite one is, oh, you're going to second guess an NFL head coach. Who are you? And I'm like, man, it's it's social media. Like, this is why we have these, right? It's just we're having the conversation at the water cooler just online. But, man, the hate for some of these, I do, yeah. the emotions. I think the Mac Jones evaluation has been so polarizing to follow because just what you said is actually true in NFL buildings as well. I have former NFL head coaches who are good friends of mine that have him rated at the top of the five. And, and you just heard where he's fifth on my list. So what it tells me is probably the truth is in the middle somewhere. I couldn't really, in good faith, pick him when I have that type of variance in evaluation. It's crazy. People are all over the board on it. So I'm going with a consensus, especially when I'm picking this high. I understand Kyle Shanahan is the coach. Um, we'll see how it works out. Sometimes I always ask myself, though, is it need and desperation that drives some of these names up there? Or is it really the talent and the ceiling and, and the, the player himself that, that gets driven up there? So, again, there's agendas. I don't know. Time will tell. Now, one question I've always had, and this really had an impression on me as a young coach, as a young just person in football, I read uh, Jimmy Johnson's book. I think it's like Shark Amongst Dolphins or something like that. It wasn't the one about when he took over the Cowboys, but when he was with the Dolphins. And he said something that was I felt was profound and maybe you disagree with. And I guess that's why I'm asking. But <laughs> he basically said that when he would do draft evals, that he would not open it to debate in front of other people. And what he would do is he would meet with the scouts one on one. And what he said early on in his career and other avenues, and I've actually applied this to my own life when talking about ranking players for high school teams in terms of like, where, where's our best guy? Where do we want to put him? And the reason that he did this is he said when there was debate a lot of times, and maybe it was just him, he was, he was impressionable, but he said that sometimes it wasn't that the best idea one, but the best debater one. 
He said he realized one day that he was listening to the scout and this, this scout was particularly passionate and he was persuasive. He was just a persuasive individual. And Jimmy found himself agreeing with him more after he talked to him rather than what he saw on tape. And he said that he was afraid if you had like too much open dialogue amongst all the, the scouts that the guys who are the collectors or the guys who are just, they're really good at watching the tape and getting the numbers and getting stories, but they're not necessarily like super dynamic personalities that they would kind of get drowned out. And so he started meeting one-on-one and then taking that stuff. I mean, obviously they would have some group meetings, but, and I know that I, I found that in my coaching history is, Hey, where should we play this kid? And not always the best idea one, but the best debater, one of the most passionate speaker would win. How do you feel about that? Like, do you think that that's not the way to approach? And I'm not asking you to second guess Jimmy Johnson or anything like that. I'm just, do you feel that that's a valid criticism? Like, did you, do you see that? Did you do that in your time? Or did you always do open-ended exchanges where everybody's kind of sharing ideas at the same table? Like, what's your take on that? I, I think it's a great point. I think it's one of um, constant balancing act by the decision maker because you've got to be the listener. You've got to give your own opinion as well. But I do think you have to be cognizant because, in fact, I wrote this for my blog the other day. You can't allow the loudest voice to, to have the most effect on, on where this player ends up. It's just it's not about that. We, are, we don't have a sales team. It, it shouldn't be up to a scout or an evaluator to get his guys drafted. If that's our goal, I think we're wrong. I think nothing could be further from the truth. The idea is to reach a consensus where we get the player right for us, for our team, not to serve an agenda of an, of, of an individual evaluator. So I think it's a good point. Um, I, I tend to, to like to have an open dialogue. I don't want to embarrass anybody. I have met with people individually but I want them to learn how to describe a player in terms that make sense. Um, but I, I would, I would probably chastise more than not a, a guy who thinks he has all the answers as the evaluator. But again, if you know your evaluators, you should be able to weed through all this by evaluating the evaluators themselves. Evaluating the evaluators. Love it. Speaking of evaluating, what do you think is the most important part of that evaluation process? Is it college film, the measurables, coaching recommendations, one-on-one with a player? I know it's different for certain players too, because there may be somebody you may have a character concern with. So you're more going to more listen to the coach or it just so happens to be a player that you have a relationship with their college head coach. You guys were roommates in college, you know, just, you know, hear these crazy stories, but and, and yeah. maybe you'll take one person's advice. Not that they, you think the other guy's wrong, but you just happen to have a personal relationship with that coach or, you know, but if you were to try to, and again, I know this is imperfect, but if you were to try to make like a, a pie chart, a hundred percent pie chart where you were trying to pr- put a rough percentage on what matters on the average to, to build that evaluation process, how would you kind of slice that pie up? Well, I would start by probably having 70% of it based on college film. I'm, I can find out more watching tape than I can talking to, to anybody, to be honest with you. Now, I need a coach to fill me in sometimes on what we're asking a specific player to do on a, any particular play, but I can find 
character information. I can find medical information. I can find heart, soul, instincts, all of the intangibles if I watch enough tape. So I'm going to put college tape first and foremost. Measurables matter, but that shows up on tape as well. If, if measurables are affecting his, his effectiveness, that'll show up on tape. Coaching recommendations I'm always leery of because other than work ethic, how he learns, I want to gather intangibles from the coach, but I really don't need him to tell me what kind of player he is because he doesn't know what we're looking for and doesn't know how he would fit with us. So I'm a little less to put much on a coaching recommendation. And, and who knows, a lot of college coaches want their guys to get drafted. That's their goal. It's, it's, that will help recruiting if we get yeah. our guys picked high. Another reason to where I just, I, I can't, I got to consider the agenda. Not that I don't trust the coach because some of my best friends are doing it, but you have to factor in the agenda as well. So I think that the, the process of watching tape with measurables, with gathering intangible information from coaches, and then one-on-one uh, information that you gather from the player himself on how he learns best, how he uh, views football, testing his football IQ, all that fits into that maybe that other 30%. Now that's that makes perfect sense. I mean you you can glean a lot from watching the tape and and I can see where the the disconnect on especially if a coach is influenced in terms of wanting to get their guy drafted plus like you said they don't know what you want and so it's like you don't want to listen to them almost because it it clouds yeah. your judgment. I think it's valuable. It it clouds a little bit of your picture, but I also think it's very informative to know what they are asking these guys to do. Um, if you consistently see a guy that you think is playing out of position and you question his instincts, well, maybe that coach is telling them to do certain things that I can't hold that against the kid, you know? So there's some information that's valuable. I just don't know as far as evaluating his, his skill set. I, I need to do that because I need to fit him into our, our scheme. And, and that's the, that's the part that nobody can really tell me. I have to do that myself. Okay. That makes sense. And you gotta, you gotta rely on your, your instincts, like you said. So we got about 15 minutes left. Let's get into some juicy stuff. The guys really want to know. And I hope that we can make this an <laughs> annual, maybe an annual thing where we do a draft special, but because I have so many, there's so many good questions that could have been asked that we definitely won't have time for. So I'm going to get through the juicy ones. Okay. Trades. There's a lot of intrigue around how deals are done the um the subterfuge all that stuff so if you're talking about trading up and you call a team how much information are you giving them relative to who you're looking for uh if you're looking at something where it's a conditional pick in the sense that like okay i'm gonna trade up with you like i know there's gonna be somebody below the top three Let's say somebody fell in love with Justin Fields. Let's say a certain team in the Northeast that plays in Foxborough. Um, <laughs> they want to they wanna move up, and they tell the, the Falcons, hey, listen, we got an RI on a guy, and if he falls past the Niners, we're going to come up. How much information? I mean, are you really keeping that close to the vest where you don't want? Now, I know Dean, and I know it goes beyond the, the, the head coach, but, you know, Belichick and Pease worked together for many years, like, Hey, Dean, listen, or Dean calls Bill and says, or, or Bill calls Dean and says, Hey, listen, man, I'm, I really want, don't tell the guys this, but I really want fields. And if he's there past the Niners, if Shanahan takes Mac, 
you know, we want to move up there. But if he does, if he takes Justin, then we're cool. Like, how much are are they disclosing those conditional those conditions when when trading up? Well, if I was on a staff that that information was being traded, we'd have a problem. I can tell you that. <laughs> so, no, none of that is is ever traded. The information from within. You would shut people out of the room if you knew that coaches were having that kind of conversation. I don't want to show our hand at all. I don't want to. I don't want to tip anybody off as to what we may be doing. Um, trades at the NFL level really come from one person, and, and it's really the decision maker, whoever that is, whether it's the head coach or the GM. That's where it comes from. So I would not involve assistant coaches. I wouldn't involve anybody else per se. Obviously, the owner has to be in the loop on that. And we might talk about all kinds of scenarios, trading up, trading down. But the trade partners that you're, that you're communicating with would know very little about why, when, how. They wouldn't have all that information. They just know that I'm interested in coming up. If your guy isn't there at four, you know, get back to me. I, I, we might want to come up uh, for that spot. Uh, and, and you kind of set the, set the table by having these communications with really everybody. I'll call, you know, 15 teams around us, you know, seven above, seven below, and and try to just put in their ear, hey, if this happens, we might be interested in coming up. If this happens, we might be able interested in coming down. So you you explore all these possibilities, but a lot of times nothing happens until you're on the clock or somebody's on the clock and they have to make a decision and they don't like where they're at. I find it so fascinating. It's, it's just, it's such a cool uh, thing that goes on now. How solid are those deals that you're putting together in terms of, let's say, let's say you don't tell who the person is, but let's use this Atlanta scenario where Belichick calls. um, Pardon me. I I don't know the GM's name at the Falcons. I should, but calls him. There you go. I knew you'd know that. Did, did you ever, you said you got four guys in the league that work for you at some point. Who, if you don't mind, I mean, who are they? Mickey Loomis at New Orleans, George Payton at Denver, Ryan Pace in Chicago, and Chris Greer in Miami. Beautiful. Um, but let's say, you know, Bill calls the Falcons and says, hey, listen, there's a guy we want. We're not going to tell you who it is. And, and, and Terry goes, Bill, I know who it is. Okay, whatever. Fine. I'm not telling you anyway. But um, how solid is that deal where they'll say, hey, listen, if, if a player X, we won't tell you who it is, is available, we want to move up. Will you do the deal beforehand? Because it seems like a lot to negotiate in 15 minutes. And then you just pull the trigger on the deal. That's why you have to set the table ahead of time so that you don't have much to negotiate during that time. You have to have made that call. The mindset of pulling the trigger has to happen in a short period of time. So you got to give teams um, the advance notice to think it through on their end. If I got hit with something cold out of the blue while we were on the clock, I would consider it, but I'm less apt to make that deal if I haven't thought it through. I don't want to make decisions when I'm boxed in on time. I just don't, you know, I don't make a habit of that. Maybe some do. I don't. I don't want time to be of the essence. I want to have thought it through ahead of time. So there's a good chance that some of that information might have been exchanged. Individual players will never be exchanged. You'll never know who they're picking or or really care. I don't really care if I'm falling from four clear to 15. I know who will be there, and, and I've investigated enough of the players that we like to know who will be there at 15. That will determine if I want to do it, plus the compensation that they're willing to give. 
you ever in a situation where you strike a deal with a team beforehand or been a part of like, you know, when you were at the Chargers where you had a deal set to move up or move down or whatever. And then the time comes, the situation falls in line. You pick up the phone to call and then they try and hold you ransom for extra stuff. Um, not necessarily that way. I had a deal once in Seattle with, let's just say it, it was with the Jets. In fact, Parcells was in charge. And we had a deal the night before the draft. They picked sixth. We picked 11th. And he, they said, if our guy isn't there, we will make the deal with you. We had discussed the negotiation, the compensation, and all that fine. So I left the office night before the draft thinking we have a good chance to make a deal. I come in the next morning. Bill calls me and says, no, no deal. Uh, uh, we're going to make a deal with Tampa, who's ahead of you, so we don't have to fall away back to 11. I'm kind of distraught. I'm kind of pissed that I thought we were going to make this. doesn't happen. But he says at the end of it, he says, but if I was you, I'd call Tampa because I don't think they know who they want. So the minute wow. we hang up, I call The minute we hang up, I call Tampa. And uh, they said, well, let's just see who's there when we get to six. We got to six. Their guy was gone. We made the deal with Tampa for less than I initially had given up in, in the pre-negotiation with the Jets to move up. So we made a better deal in the end. Just took a little extra step to get there. We drafted Walter Jones, a Hall of Fame tackle, and the rest was history. Wow, great pick. And um, that sleepless night, uh, I, I guess you wouldn't trade that for having Walter Jones. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> no, but that's the gambit of emotions you ride when you make these deals. You, you leave the building thinking one thing, you come back a few hours later, and it's totally different. So you do have to be somewhat nimble. But if you've discussed everything, there's a, there's a good chance nothing will surprise you. So you were angry, uh, angry, happy at Parcells for screwing you on the deal and then turning around and giving you the, I mean, that's fantastic. I'd give Tampa a call. I mean, if he doesn't say that, do you call Tampa? You know, you never know. You never call Tampa. You don't know. Yeah. So thanks, Bill. Right. You just landed uh, yep. Randy, a Hall of Famer. Um, <laughs> how much psychological warfare is there between teams? Was there ever a time the team smoke screened you? Or said, uh, you know, oh, we're not looking to jump up and then, you know, jumped up ahead of you and took somebody you wanted. Like, how much of that really goes on? Um, less than in the past. I would say this, and I spent 20, actually, I spent uh, 17, I spent 27 years in the AFC West of my career. The first 20 in Seattle, uh, first 17 in Seattle, then 10 with the Chargers. Um, and at that time, Seattle was in with the Chargers, Denver, the Raiders, Kansas City. That division was dog-eat-dog. Dog. There was subterfuge. There was lying. There was everything that used to happen back in the 80s and 90s. We would never make a deal with the Raiders. We, we all, I think, genuinely didn't like the other team or the people that were involved with them. So I just don't think that happens anymore. I think people are more friendly. People are more on the same page. I remember one, one draft morning in Seattle, getting a call from a team in our division half hour before the draft starts saying, you guys didn't send out your phone numbers. Nobody can get a hold of you. They're wanting to make deals and they want to talk to you, but nobody has your phone numbers. Well, I knew it was total bullshit. They were just trying to create chaos, right? <laughs> in our <laughs> wow. So, so that, that's the kind of stuff that would happen. Um, one time we were at three, the Raiders were at two. They, seen, they thought they knew who we were going to pick. So they wanted to swap from three to two and were trying to hold us up to come up one spot. Well, my comeback to them was, I don't, I'll pick the guy you're going to pick. I'm fine with that. I'm, the, I'm good with all three guys. 
And mm-hmm. so that put that one to bed. So it seemed like oh, somebody in the AFC West was always looking to trick you or do something. But I don't think that happens as much in this day and age as it did back then. Too much information out there. Um, like you said, social media, media in general, there's really very few secrets anymore. Back then, information was even more king, and, and you just didn't have all the information. So a, a team might take the bait if you threw it out there. We were lucky we never did, but some teams might have. Brilliant. Two real quick questions, and then I want you to plug your show and your Twitter and your blog and all that stuff before we sign off. Okay, this was actually the first question I wrote down, and I had to get to it. All these coaches submitted these wonderfully, like, brilliant questions about evaluating and all this stuff. This is the question I want to know. What is the craziest draft day decision you were either a part of or heard about? And now that you mentioned Al Davis, I'm sure it's going to be somewhere in there. Now that he's gone, rest in peace, the stories will probably come out. But what's the craziest draft day decision you were either part of or heard about? Anything wild. You hear these crazy stories where, like, the GM and the head coach are on the same page, so they flip a coin or they ask the janitor or rock, paper, scissors to make a make a decision. Have you ever heard or taken part of anything like wild like that? You know, I, I really haven't been a part of it. I've had a lot of picks where I would roll my eyes and we might chuckle a little bit just because it was so far fetched that we thought there's no way that could ever happen. And, you know, you, you mentioned the Raiders. I mean, I remember the year they drafted Janikowski, the kicker. None of us saw that coming. That, that kind of took us all by surprise. But he ended up being a pretty good kicker for him. There's no doubting that. Um, there's always, I think if you've been around long enough, you've seen a lot. But you've also seen the flip side in that the, the craziest thing that you think can't happen ends up happening. And, and guess what? The guy then turns out to be a decent player. So it, it just you tend to respect others more, I think, the longer you've been around and you tend to judge teams and other teams decisions less because you've been around. So you've just seen it. You've seen enough to where you know not to be judgmental and, and uh, you just worry about yourself more than ever before. Yeah. Stay in your lane. Cause I know with coaching, you know, obviously before I was a coach and before I could be embarrassed in public, you know, I had a lot of thoughts yeah. on what guys did, and then I did it, and I was like, everybody's great. Everybody's fantastic. <laughs> There's no, you know, everybody's just trying their best. <laughs> Turn into a softie. All right, last question. So a time-honored tradition is NFL journalists releasing mock drafts for the following year, the night of the third day of the draft. When will most general managers actually begin preparing for the 22 draft in earnest? Well, I look at it like you're mowing the grass at the golf course, right? The minute you get done on 18 fairway, guess what? Fairway one is growing up, so you got to go back and start over again. So you probably get a couple weeks after the draft. In fact, I wrote a column today that's going to post on Fox Digital later this week on just this. The, the ending of the draft doesn't come at the end of round seven. It comes when the undrafted free agents find homes, and that's a couple hours after that. You probably get two weeks of downtime after that, but then you're starting over again with combine meetings the end of May uh, for the next year's class. So there's not much time. It's an 11-month process for sure, and uh, you know it, it takes all of 11 months to gather the amount of information, to build the consensus, to get all your people on the same page. It's a full-time gig, and probably why these GMs nowadays make so much money is it's 
It is a grind, uh, 11 months a year, to put together your draft plan and philosophy and strategy for sure. God, that's going to be such a grind. <laughs> I, I actually love the process. I love everything about it. And, and I love the, 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 the putting it all together part. So I think you've got to be wired a little different to do it. But I like the team building a lot. And that team building exercise, um, you know, that takes 11 months. I'm all for it. And, and like I said, I think I'm probably uh, uh, a little bit of an exception to the rule. It's not a grind for, for those in the, in the business, for sure. 30 seconds. If you're building a team and on defense and it, say you're starting a fran- uh, an expansion team, whatever, you got to have one position on defense and it could be any of them, and you want to take with your first pick, and it, say all of it's even. It's not like it's between Aaron Donald and like the third best corner in the NFL. Everything's equal. What position are you taking on defense first? I'm probably taking a five-technique defensive end, somebody that can play all three downs, uh, give you physical presence at the point of attack, but yet is athletic enough to get an edge and rush. Um, you might, I might suggest an outside linebacker if he was a crazy outside speed rusher. But those are the two guys. I'm going to focus on big guys. That's just my philosophy. I know this, whether you're high school, college, or the pros, the best teams are the ones that have the best big cats. And that, I don't think that's changed over 30 years. What's the old Parcel saying that uh, there's only the big, the big man th- planet theory where there's only so many big people on the planet that can move fast? All right. I don't want to take any more of your time. I know you're a busy guy. Uh, coach, please. I did it again. Give us your Twitter handle, uh, your your podcast, your blogs. Let people know how they can get more Randy Mueller. If anybody does care about any of this stuff, they can always follow me on Twitter at Randy Mueller underscore. Like I said, we do the podcast uh, on the platform of The Athletic. It's free. It's called the, the Football GM, and you can find that wherever you find your podcasts, whether it's Apple or Spotify. And then I write for a blog. I have a little uh, website called MuellerFootball.com. A lot of advising things on there. But I write a blog that seems to uh, gather a lot of interest uh, on there. So when you go to MuellerFootball.com, just click on the blog. And it's a lot more of the same things we just talked about, only a little more in-depth. And uh, it's about evaluating. It's about football in general. If you have any love for NFL football uh, from the GM's chair, that's where all of my thoughts go and and, uh, and then you can find me some on Fox Digital as well. And he will respond to you on Twitter. I am living proof. We This is the fastest <laughs> introduction to pod turnaround time, I believe, three days. I really appreciate your time. I have a ton of questions for you still. I hope that you can come on next year. We'll make this an annual thing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And thank you for taking care of my Dolphins while I was in college. It was fun to be in town when you were in town. I really appreciate you and uh, have an, an enjoyable evening. I appreciate the kind words. We'll do it again for sure. Take care. Enjoy that draft. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to a very unique episode of Make Defense Great Again. Thank you to Randy Mueller for coming on the pod and answering all my hard-hitting questions. Also, don't forget to check out that new YouTube video, youtube.com slash football At CoachVass is my Twitter handle, the show's account, at MDG Podcast, the offensive podcast, at Run Vass Option. For all my links to YouTube, Patreon, the website, my CoachTube courses, the CoachTube course of the week, go to linktree.com slash CoachVass. 
All of it's there. Easy to remember. Even if you can't remember that, just go to my Twitter account. The link is in the bio. Thank you to the sponsors, Coach Tube and Huddle. Love you guys. Make sure you subscribe to the show, rate and review to help out the coaches. And as always, the quarterback can't see with tears in their eyes.